It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 242, Alexander the Great. Daniel 8.2 In the third year in King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one I had already appeared before me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. And as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards a two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. Not to prevent any doubt by the readers or the listeners, an angel interprets the vision with extreme clarity. Daniel 8.21 The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. In this episode, we cover this aggressive goat and the first king, whose name is Alexander. Bible scholars will call him the goat, while secular scholars have labeled him the great. His achievements epitomize the world conqueror to emulate for the ages. At the loss of dominance of Athens on the world stage, Greek power started to shift. The Spartans obviously dominated the stage, but their dominance was a bit lackluster. Its militaristic society lacked the innovation required to keep a pace of this Greek world. Instead, innovation, innovative thinking, moved north into a place one would have never expected, and with it we see the fulfillment of prophecy. In the state of Macedon, just north of Greece, a king ruled his people. I just find it interesting how Napoleon followed the French Revolution, Philip of Macedon followed the Athenian democracy, and it was Caesar himself, or his successor Augustus, who destroyed the Roman Republic. This was something the Founding Fathers were terrified of, and this is why the U.S. government had so many internal controls to prevent conquerors, internal and external, from overtaking it. In Macedon, King Philip ruled, and he had a wife of many wives, and, and his main wife, she kind of had an awesome name. Her name was Olympia, named after the great mountain of Greece. When he married Olympia, she had a dream, according to Plutarch, that her womb was struck by a thunderbolt that caused a flame to spread far and wide before dying away. Philip himself had a dream where he secured his wife's womb with the seal of a lion's image. Doesn't these secular dreams sound like something that occurred in the story of Cyrus? And who's our lion here? It's the glory of this future king, but but can we see here a, a confirmation that this dream was a gift from God, a God he didn't even know. To Philip, 
to treat his son with respect and honor and to raise him with the utmost care for he had a destiny and a purpose. I just love finding these prophetic dreams in the histories. They're confirmations and communication from a heavenly power to a limited understanding world. And we just have this amazing insight because we have the actual prophecies over Alexander by Daniel. And then when we and we hear the secular accounts and their dreams and their visions, sometimes within their idol-worshiping lifestyle, God slips in and communicates a message that they have to learn because their child has a destiny for, to fulfill. Look for them in your life. Look for them in the life of others. God is speaking in the night hours. And I just love finding it in history. And um, we, we have the beauty of the Bible in this time frame. But God is still speaking today. And he has purposes and destinies for his kings out there that God wants to communicate and to break through um, our limited understanding um, to give us counsel on how we are to raise our children or to disciple others. There is more legends of Alexander's birth, and many, you know, we, we cannot deny that many are fabricated by the victors of history, um, but they're interesting. So here they are. Olympia is about to give birth to Alexander, and Philip is away on campaign when his wife goes into labor. On this day, his chief general, Parmenion, defeats a combined force of enemy armies. Philip's horses win the Olympic Games, and the Temple of Artemis burns down in Ephesus. The legend goes Artemis was out of town attending the birth of Alexander. Alexander would grow up in Macedon and learn the ways of the warlike Macedonians. All the while, Philip increased in power, and he was an innovator. He took Macedon from a second-rate state to world stature in a very short time. He formed a full-time professional fighting force, and in this age, he was a military genius. He reformed his military and expanded his kingdom. His innovations include the following, companion cavalry, attributed by historians as the first shock cavalry in world history. He would form huge cavalry forces capable of knocking entire enemies' armies out with a charge. He upgraded the phalanx and organized Greek force and equipped them with an enormous 17-foot spear, making them the most dreaded infantry force in the world. These innovations make Philip one of the greatest military leaders of all time. He starts an invasion of Greek proper with these military units, and he finds success after success. And little by little, he spreads his influence. And now we arrive at another one of those legends about Alexander. When he was 10 years old, a trader brought a magnificent black horse to sell to Philip and his men. No one could saddle it, for it was wild. Alexander, a 10-year-old boy, walks up to the horse and recognized that it was afraid of its own shadow and angled the horse to not see its shadow and saddled it and claimed it as his own. His father's response was awe. My son, you must find a kingdom big enough for your ambitions. Alexander named the horse Bucephalus, meaning ox head. And Alexander would keep the horse, and it would become one of the most famous military horses in all of history. Philip would go on to see more and more of his son's potential. He, he searches to find the best teacher for his genius of a son. So we, we've got the, the philosophers in Greece, right? You've got 
Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. In this age, the philosopher of philosophers and possibly the, the smartest man on the planet was Aristotle. His authorship was vast and much of his work survived today. Well, here's how the story goes. It's passed down from the ages, so it's not probably exact, but Philip contacts Aristotle to be his son's teacher. Well, Aristotle probably hates him because he's from a small town in northern Greece called Stagara, and Philip just destroyed it in a campaign and enslaved its people. They correspond for a bit, and Aristotle probably drives a deal with them. Yes, I'll tutor your son if you rebuild my home and unslave my people. Philip does just this and turns it into sort of a university town with buildings and structures deserving of his attention. In fact, you can go there today. Aristotle moves there and educates Alexander and his friends in a school setting. Further, Alexander's friends and future companions in the cavalry and generals are his fellow students and classmates. The future world leaders are mostly all educated by Aristotle at this time. From age 10 to 16, he receives his education. And I want to go further. It's here in Stagara, if I'm saying it right, that Greek thought, philosophy, and the cream of the crop of all Greek intellectual understanding of the age was deposited in these young boys. And it's these boys who will carry with them to the edge of the earth on military campaign. And once the wars are over, they'll sit down and read and study and think and contemplate and build up a new world based upon Greek thought. At 16, his education was complete, and he resumed military campaigns with his father. Philip advanced his army south into Greek proper and eventually takes over all of Greece. His forces were supreme. It's interesting how easy he actually took over Greece. Um, Athens is you know, a second-rate power because Spartans reduced it to, to such. They were relying on mercenaries to actually fight their battles. And when Philip came down... And he attacked combined forces of Greek cities. They really were no match for Philip because of his superior military technology. Philip was planning for an invasion of the Persian Empire. In a shocking surprise, Philip is assassinated at a wedding. And on the spot, Alexander is proclaimed king at the age of 20. Alexander is crowned king of Greece. Alexander immediately did away with threats to his throne, including family members who, who might claim the throne and had better, like, you know, royal status than him. He did away with them. He put down rebellions. He would go on to burn Thebes and invade Illyria to secure the north. He marched his army and crossed the Dardanelles and swiftly marched into modern Turkey. A hastily put-together Persian force was crossed at the Granicus River. King Darius of Persia pulled together the best of his nation and marched out to meet Alexander in southern modern Turkey. A hundred thousand Persians versus 40,000 Greeks. I mean, Alexander, he resumed his father's ambitions. And, and it's interesting if you listen to military history and historians, they don't always put Alexander at the top of the top. He, he's an amazing military leader but he had a father that was awesome too. So his father gave him this leg up, and all of a sudden, at 20 years old, he's a king of all of Greece. And he has the most technologically sophisticated army in the world. It's just he's invading a country that has 10 times more resources than him and enormous 
uh, military uh, that he has to combat. I mean, it, it's staggering. He, when, he, when he goes and he meets him at the Granicus River, it's close in numbers, maybe, you know, and, and he has a chance. But now we're talking 40,000 Greeks against 100,000 Persians. And before we cover the battle, we had to cover another legend. As Alexander was taking city after city in modern Turkey, we, he comes to the city of Gordia. And outside of the city was a bundle of ropes tied in a knot. And the legend goes that whoever could untie the knot, the Gordian knot, they would be the conqueror of Asia. Alexander walked up to the knot and examined it. He pulled his sword and cut it in two. Nobody said how to untie the knot. Alexander instead demonstrated how to. The legend was that anyone who could untie the knot would conquer Asia. Logic was the following. No one can untie this knot. Alexander knew this, and he was at the doorstep of Asia, and he held it in his sway. He had to untie the knot. This was impossible. To solidify his legend and his thinking, he defied the rules of the day and cut the knot. Asia was his. His father defined the the military, he redefined tactics and boldness. He was not confined to the rules of his day. He helped redefine them. At Isis, Alexander met Darius. The stakes were the Western Persian Empire. Alexander lined his cavalry on the wings. Darius did the same. The cavalry met first, followed by the center, filled with tens of thousands of soldiers. Parmenians started to give way to the numerically superior Persian cavalry on the Greek left. Yet Alexander started to smash through the forces in front of him and turn the left flank of the Persians, surrounding and entrapping the Persian left. Seeing Darius in the back center of his line, Alexander, who led from the front, chased after Darius, though the campaign and the battle was could, could be considered not even halfway over, but it was when Alexander saw the opposing king and took his cavalry and ran after him. Darius, in fear, fled the battlefield. And when Darius fled, the Persian organization disintegrated, and the Greeks took the field. And at this stage, this is where, you know, the Greek forces would surround them, and the casualties are always much higher when one one army flees from the other because they're being chased and they're not the armor is not in the rear of the soldier alexander's tactics were bold and they were brilliant turning the flank of a much larger force showed his great gifting courage was a factor here alexander fought on the battlefield on the front line darius was in the back and when alexander raised his sword in hand to kill or capture the opposing king darius fled Next, Alexander marches to Israel, yet he stops to besiege Tyre. And when Tyre refuses to bend, he fills in the bay with dirt until he marches over and across it. Then he besieges the city from all sides and eventually breaks into the city and destroys it. That's one way to cross over the island of Tyre, this island fortress city. It's to basically fill in the bay. Tyre's long-ago prophesied destruction just continues and continues. And if you go to Google Maps and you, uh, you just type in Tyre, you're going to see it. And it's interesting. All it looks like is just kind of a hooked bay. 
That's because Alexander filled in the water to get to the island, which is now filling with silt and it's expanding, you know, year after year. And, and you don't see an island anymore. And that's because of Alexander. Alexander marches towards Jerusalem. And here we have an intersection with our biblical history. It's not in the Bible. So I, I'd probably say Jewish tradition instead. But Josephus records the next scene. In Israel, the Persians have evacuated. The highest ranking official in Jerusalem is actually the high priest. And his name is Jadua. I'm probably saying that wrong. Jadua. He prays because he doesn't know what to do. If he welcomes Alexander, the Persians might flip out. If he denies Alexander, Alexander might get murderous. Jadua asks the people to pray to God for his mercy and protection. And next, according to Josephus, Jadua had a dream, Jadua had a dream on how to entreat the Macedonian king. He and the other priests, dressed in their priestly robes and accompanied by others dressed in white garments, formed a procession that went out of the city to a carefully chosen place to meet the king. At the greeting place, Alexander then did the unexpected. Alone, he approached the high priest and members of the procession and greeted them. And when they asked, when asked by one of his generals why he welcomed this group, Alexander replied, and, this, and I quote Josephus here, I do not adore him, but that God has honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this garment, while I was in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, he exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea, for that he would conduct my army and give me the dominion over the Persians. Hence that, having seen no other in that habit, in that apparel, and now seeing this person in it, and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in the dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians, and all things will succeed according to that which is on my own mind. Josephus records that Alexander then accompanied the high priest into Jerusalem and the temple where he offered sacrifice to God according to the high priest's direction and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priest. Alexander's visit was capped by a briefing from the book of Daniel, which we read at the beginning, written several centuries earlier, which foretold the rise and conquest of Alexander. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that he was the person indeed. Can you see that? Our prophet describes a man who will take over all of Asia. This is the high priest. I can see Alexander shouting aloud, I am the man. I am the man. He supposed that himself was the person indeed. I am the man. Next, Alexander invades Egypt. and Without much of a battle, he's ailed Pharaoh and a god. Unfortunately, he welcomes this title, showing his worship of God in Jerusalem was the bowing of a knee to one of many gods. In Egypt, he founds a city called Alexandria, which will play a huge part in our story later. After Egypt, he took his forces with supplies from Egypt and invaded the rest of Persia. At Gagamela, he faced Darius again. In a similar scene to Isis, 
Alexander turned the left flank of his enemy and pursued Darius. At Gagamelon, the Persians collapsed and Alexander conducted mopping up operations. He burns Persepolis, supposedly for the burning of Athens by Xerxes years ago. He pursues the fleeing Darius to Ectana, where he takes the royal treasury. Darius is murdered by his own people, and another usurper is hunted to the farthest eastern extremes of the Persian Empire until Alexander virtually owns all of Persia. He finds himself at the top of the Indus River Valley in India, and he chooses to invade it. His invasion achieves success after success until his men, these are the Greeks, tell him to hang up his ambition shoes for a while and enjoy your spoils. India can wait. Alexander calls off his endless invasions at the advice of his men, and eventually his army marches all the way back to Babylon. And at the end of the campaign, he's the most successful military conqueror the world has ever seen to this time. At the age of 32, Alexander's enjoying himself in Babylon, maybe in the gardens. He's enjoying himself. He's got some ambitious plans for invasions, this time probably in the west, maybe an invasion of uh, the rest of the Mediterranean area. He's in the gardens. He's enjoying himself. And a meaningless mosquito bites him. He goes on with his business, you know, founding cities, conducting irrigation projects, designing world wonders, you know, world ruler type stuff. Just a regular day. Maybe there's also some invasions of China, some plans on the wall, some world maps, maybe some other, you know, ideas he's got in mind. Just a normal day. Just a normal day for the world's most ambitious and successful military commander to ever exist up to this point. There's no gray hair on his head. He's only 32. Not an ounce of fat. He's a lean warrior. He's bold. He's aggressive. He's brilliant. Just a normal day. Feels a little tired. Retires early for the night. Just a slightly different night. His friends were surprised he retires early, but hey, he's the king. In the morning, he has a fever. Having a hot temper, he yells at a servant and doctor and even a friend. He'll laugh it off. It's just a hangover. By the afternoon, he's pale. He's not looking good. His doctors and friends are worried. Surely he's just sick. He sleeps nearly 12 hours at night, that night. In the morning, his face turns a color indicating sickness, a bit green. Doctors are worried about disease. He's given all sorts of medicine. Certain juices are given to him to make him better. A doctor voices concern. He screamed, he'll be fine in the morning. I'll be fine in the morning. The thing was, it was the morning. He stopped making sense. By the, mor the next morning, the smell of death was in the air. His generals rushed to his side, and no one, I mean no one, could even get him to speak. He was speechless. Malaria had set in. The next few days, he fell in and out of consciousness. With no will and no destiny set forth after him, Alexander the Great died at the age of 32, the ruler of Greece, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, modern Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and huge portion of India. The earth fell silent at the news of the death of this great man. There's so much here. Most historians point to malaria as his reason for death, but there's lots of ideas out there. I mean, 
you know, could be assassinations, whatever, but the most common interpretation of, or uh, of everything that happens here is, is, uh, it's not like some, some, someone killed him and took his throne. It, it doesn't work that way in this case. Um, it, it looks like he truly had malaria or some sort of sickness or something that took him out. You think of so much here, arrogance and pride. It's fascinating. Here's the man, the greatest in some ways in all world history to some people. Dead by a bug. A bug killed him. A mosquito bite carrying malaria ended up killing him. A bug killed him. The fearless in the face of odds, fearless in the face of his enemies, fearless in the face of battle, technologically superior, superior in thought and action, superior in strength and boldness, yet killed by a bug, a meaningless, unimportant bug. Here's a quote by trusty Thucydides from a previous generation. For the whole earth is the tomb of famous men. Not only are they commemorated by columns and inscriptions in their own country, but in foreign lands there dwells also an unwritten memorial of them, graven not on stone, but in the hearts of men. Make them your examples, and esteeming courage to be freedom, and freedom to be happiness. Do not weigh too nicely the perils of war. This almost sounds like an Ecclesiastes moment, one of those meaningless moments. Don't count Alexander too much your hero. He was killed by a bug. We have to go back to Ecclesiastes to understand what happened here, to make sense of the death of one of the world's greatest men so unceremoniously. I believe he actually fulfilled his purpose. His father, unification of Greece, military innovation, his son, boldness in tearing down of the Medo-Persian Empire, and the spreading of Greek influence and traditions and language throughout the world. Think with me here. I mean, there is a God plan in all of this, because um, it was prophesied. You can't say, you know, it was just chance or anything. It was prophesied. Um, there's a purpose in the way the world is going to shape um, itself by the time Jesus arrives. Think with me, who was the real winner here? Philip dies before he even enjoys his spoils. Alexander fights the Persians until all of the Persian Empire is his, and then part of India. He sits down and dies from a disease. It's a serious twist of fate. Who wins? His generals will have a grab for power, which we'll cover later. But what is the benefit of all of this? It's the spread of Greek ideas and culture. It's a spread which the world will benefit from the most. This spreading of culture and technological increase will take the world by storm. In the last episode, we covered all those Greek innovations. All of these are just exploded into the world at this time. The winner is not Philip or Alexander or even his generals as much as a teacher who deposited his ideas and his thoughts in their head. Because it was these thoughts and the improvement to thinking these paradigm shifts that outlive military achievements and world conqueror statuses and global wealth transfers. This teacher that molded these young men into world changers. The teacher who deposited philosophy, sciences, and literature upon their hearts. It was the Greek system, namely Aristotle, who took advantage of his years with these young world changers and discipled them, depositing brilliance in them to take it to the edges of the earth. 
When we arrive in the New Testament time period, we'll see Israel transformed by Greek thought. The synagogues will in many ways resemble the Greek system of education and learning. The questioning of Jesus in his final week will look something like the debates that occur in Athens. The Romans will have their influence as well, but the Greeks started a charge up a hill of cultural improvements that will set the world stage in context for God himself to walk the streets of Israel. In the next episode, we see what happens when Alexander dies. And I'll give you a hint. It's in Daniel chapter 8. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.